This is episode 148 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Mary Shelley and the Last Man. This episode is part of our Literary Sunday series, but if you're listening to this on Father's Day, I do want to forewarn you uh, that we do discuss the death of a number of children. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about Mary Shelley's novel called The Last Man, which is described as an apocalyptic dystopian science fiction novel, though it certainly doesn't qualify as science fiction in the way that we think about it today. Uh, But it definitely is set in the future. Uh, It was first published in 1826, and it's set in the time period between the years 2073 and 2100. It describes a time period after the Earth has been ravaged by a pandemic, appropriate for our literary series during this time, and discusses a lot of themes of the Romantic era, as were often written about by Mary Shelley's husband, Percy Shelley, and also her dear friend, Lord Byron, who both make uh, lengthy appearances in The Last Man. The novel was severely suppressed at the time of publication because it was considered uh, to be uh, sort of anti-Christian. There were a couple of uh, editions published, one in London and one in Paris, and then eventually there was a pirated one published in the United States in 1833. It actually received uh, some very bad reviews at the time, Uh, People were really critical of this idea of lastness, and uh, reviewers uh, labeled the book as sickening, criticized its, quote, stupid cruelties, and (laughs) described her as having a diseased imagination. And apparently that surprised Mary Shelley, who said that in the future she would try and write a more popular book. Uh, Nevertheless, eventually she spoke of The Last Man as one of her favorite works. It was eventually reprinted in 1965, and at that time its themes and ideas were much more acceptable, and it got a lot more critical attention, perhaps because of the notion of being the last anything was more acceptable at that time. Uh, There was eventually a movie made of it in 2008. There is a question about whether or not it really is considered dystopian. I think if you and I read it with a casual definition of dystopian, we would think, yes, being the last man on Earth probably means that the Earth has arrived at a pretty dystopian state. Uh, But I guess in the eyes of many literary critics, the idea of dystopia means that a condition has been brought about by the hands of man. 
And in this case, in Shelley's novel, the pandemic is really what has caused the dystopia. And so perhaps it doesn't really qualify as a dystopian novel. I want to talk first about Mary Shelley's life, uh, which is in some ways a dystopian enough. Uh, so we'll start with her birth. Mostly known as the novelist who wrote the Gothic novel Frankenstein, Mary Shelley was born in England in 1797, and her father was the political philosopher William Godwin, and her mother was a noted feminist, Mary Wollstonecraft. And very sadly, Mary Shelley's mother died uh, less than a month after giving birth to her. It's uh, sad how many of these stories we've had over the last few Sundays of notable writers losing their mothers so early in their life. It's like Disney. You can't have a story uh, without the death of a parent. She was raised mostly by her father, uh, but was very heavily influenced by the writings and thinking of her mother. And her father was quite determined to provide her with what at the time was a fairly unusual education for girls, but to encourage her to become a good thinker and also a writer. Mary was sent up to Scotland on several occasions uh, to gain additional education with a friend of her father's who was a philosopher. Again, uh, here we have the dangers of sending your children off to be educated by philosophers. Godwin was left to bring up Mary along with her half-sister, Fanny. And Godwin published his own book, Memoirs of the Author of a Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was intended to be a tribute to his late wife, but because those memoirs revealed uh, that she'd had affairs and even had an illegitimate child, uh, they were considered to be rather shocking, but again, had a big influence on Mary Shelley. Her father had a tough time. He had a publishing firm uh, which sold children's books and games and so forth, but it was not successful, and he was often deeply in debt and really struggled to take care of his children. And so he did marry again this uh, woman, Mary Jane Claremont, uh, who had kind of a bad reputation as not being a very pleasant person among some of their friends. Uh, but Godwin was devoted to her, and they had uh, two more children, and there are some indications that perhaps she favored her own children over Mary and Fanny. Anyway, between the influence of her father and her time spent in Scotland, uh, he described her when she was 15 years old as being singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in anything she undertakes almost invincible. Mary met the poet-philosopher Percy Shelley in 1814, and at that point, he had become estranged from his wife and was hanging out a lot with Godwin, kind of promising that he would help him out of debt. Percy Shelley came from an aristocratic family, but they were becoming increasingly irritated with him as he continued to... Uh, demonstrate his radicalism through his poetry and his views. And so they 
uh, were withholding money from him because they were afraid that he would use it for political purposes. So he didn't quite have the access to funds that he had promised Mary's father. And eventually the two uh, became somewhat estranged when Godwin realized that Percy Shelley wasn't going to be able to pay off his debts, and he felt betrayed by that. Mary and Percy began meeting each other in secret, allegedly at her mother's grave, and they fell in love. Uh, He was uh, 21 at the time, and they declared their love for each other and his ardent passion leading her to uh, declare her love as well. And the tradition is that they consummated their love in the cemetery. Mary Shelley describes herself as having been attracted to his, quote, wild, intellectual, and unearthly looks. Now, no surprise here, Mary's father disapproved of the liaison uh, to, to Mary's surprise. And at about the same time, she realized that uh, Shelley's promises to pay off her father's debts weren't going to, to come to fruition. Uh, nevertheless, she was very enamored with him despite this confusi- confusion, and so they took off and eloped and uh, left for France, although they took Mary's stepsister along with them and left behind uh, Percy's pregnant wife. So they traveled around, kind of bummed around. They didn't have very much money and worked on their reading and writing, uh, reading Mary's mother's work, and eventually lack of money forced them to turn back and return to England, and by that time, Mary Shelley was pregnant. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Percy Shelley's wife had given birth uh, to a boy, and in this forthcoming era of free love, Percy Shelley had also become lovers with Claire Uh, Mary Shelley's half-sister. And as if all of this weren't confusing enough for a 17, 18-year-old, she uh, did give birth, but the baby was premature and died. Things started looking up for the couple. Uh, Percy Shelley's grandfather died and left him some money, and so they were able to move to Switzerland and had some friends there, and Mary gave birth there to a second child, They had kind of a little gang that they were hanging out with, including Lord Byron and some other friends, and they rented this villa where they would all uh, hang out and uh, go walking, boating, talking, and writing. And while they were there, there was a suggestion by Lord Byron that they each write a ghost story. And this put a lot of pressure onto young Mary Shelley, who was not Shelley at that point. She was still Mary Godwin. They had not married. And so eventually she uh, began to think about a ghost story for her, and she had some visions that came to her. And that is when she produced her very famous novel, Frankenstein, which was published in 1818. And she later described that summer in Switzerland as the moment when she stepped out from childhood into life. Mary and Percy then moved back to England, along with Claire, who was still uh, hanging around, who was now pregnant. And during this time, things did start to go south again. Mary Godwin got a letter from her half-sister Fanny, uh, which sounded very troubling, 
And so uh, Percy raced off to try and get in touch with her, but uh, when they found her, she uh, was already dead with a suicide note. She'd killed herself. And then a few months later, Percy Shelley's wife, Harriet, uh, drowned herself uh, near London. And both suicides were hushed up. Harriet's family tried to keep Percy Shelley then from adopting uh, his two children, and he, it was advised that it might improve his case if he married. So he and Mary, by this time she was pregnant again, uh, were married in 1816 in London. And then Claire gave birth uh, to a baby girl whose name was Alba. Perhaps related to that, a court ruled that Percy Shelley was morally unfit to assume custody of his children, and so they were placed with a clergyman. Uh, meanwhile, the Shelleys moved along with Claire and her daughter to a different location along the Thames, and there Mary Shelley gave birth to her third child. It was there in the summer of 1817 that Mary Shelley finished Frankenstein, which was published in 1818. And because Percy Shelley had been very involved with the book and was published with his preface, and it was assumed that he was actually the author since the book had been published anonymously. Despite that, the couple had a lot of troubles uh, with ill health and the threat of debtor's prison, uh, financial woes, and worried about losing custody of their own children, uh, they all decided, along with Claire and Alba, to move to Italy. And there they got acquainted with a whole series of friends. Uh, they read and talked and wrote, uh, socialized, and uh, just had a very interesting time there in Italy. Uh, but that time was really marked with sorrow for Mary Shelley with the loss of uh, two of her children, Clara and William, William dying of malaria in Rome, uh, which will become significant when we finally take a look at The Last Man. Mary did get pregnant again there during that time period and gave birth to her fourth child, who did end up surviving, Percy Florence, in 1819. I'm going to flash ahead here to 1822, where uh, Percy and Mary were living with other friends, including Claire, near the seaside, and they got news that Alba had died of typhus. It was not a happy time for Mary, and then even more frightening, uh, Percy Shelley and some friends uh, took off on a sailing boat they got word that there had been bad weather, and sure enough, when that letter arrived, Mary and her friend rushed over along to where the landing was supposed to be, only to find that her husband wasn't there, and then after a few more days, the bodies washed up on the shore. Mary and her son moved to England then, and she often saw Lord Byron and worked on his poems, transcribing and editing them. She was determined to live by her pen, but her financial situation was precarious, and her father-in-law would only put her on a very small stipend. He really wanted to have 
guardianship over the boy, uh, but Mary Shelley was adamantly opposed to that. Mary was also busy editing her husband's uh, poems, uh, but she was also preoccupied primarily with the education of her son. She was also working with some friends who were working on the memoirs of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, but her father-in-law had forbidden her to write a biography of him, so ha-ha, she uh, put uh, a lot of information about him in her novel, The Last Man. Yeah, don't try and get away with that with a writer. They'll, uh, they'll get around it somehow. She was also paid 500 pounds to edit a collection of works of Percy Shelley, and again, in the uh, biographical notes of about the author, she was able to include a lot of information, despite her father-in-law's uh, edict that that information not be published. She was uh, active in helping all kinds of different causes, uh, feminist causes, and other people who she deemed to be underprivileged. Uh, she was very cautious about picking up with a new romantic partner, and although she had lots of friends, uh, she did not marry again. Uh, mostly she was devoted to her son Percy, and eventually, after he left university, he came back to live with her. They traveled together across Europe. Those experiences were also noted in her journals. Eventually, her father-in-law passed away, and at that point, her son inherited a considerable amount of money, and they were able to live more comfortably. Her son got married, and his wife and Mary Shelley uh, were fond of each other, and all of them lived together until Mary's advanced age. Eventually, she became quite ill and passed away in 1851 at the age of 53. She wanted to be buried with her parents, uh, but her son felt that that was uh, not the right resting place for her, and so he eventually had her buried and then exhumed the bodies of her parents to have them buried with her. At the first anniversary of her death, her son opened her desk and found locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook that she had shared with Percy Shelley and a copy of his poem with a page folded around some of his ashes and, according to Wikipedia, the remains of his heart. Sounds a bit gruesome. Okay, so back to The Last Man. So how we know about this story, Mary Shelley explains in the introduction that in 1818, she discovered in Sybil's cave, so the prophet from Virgil's writing, Sybil, a collection of prophetic writings that were written on leaves. And so she uh, collated those together and figured out what they meant and then published that. And those prophecies are what are the stories of the last man from the year 2073 to uh, 2100. As I said, it's described as science fiction, but it's been pointed out that the world as it's described in The Last Man is pretty similar to what it was contemporary to her writing. So unlike London's forecasting monorail and so forth, we don't see any of that. In Virgil's writing, The Cave of the Sibyl, 
is a vast cavern in southern Italy with connections to the underworld, and it has a hundred mouths. So when Sybil speaks, her words come back in a hundred voices. This idea of her finding her information in a cave has been taken up in considerable detail in my book, The Mad Woman in the Attic, which is a book about feminist literary interpretation. And they make a huge deal about the fact that this information was discovered in the cave, but at first Mary Shelley doesn't understand what it all means, and her male companion first recognizes the writings for what they are. So in their chapter titled The Parables of the Cave, uh, they certainly draw a lot of parallels between a cave and a womb, but they also write about her description of the cave. Every feature of this cave journey is significant, especially for the feminist critic who seeks to understand the meaning not just of male, but also of female parables of the cave. To begin with the sad fact that not Mary Shelley, but her male companion, is able to recognize the Sibyl's cave and readily to decipher some of the difficult languages in which the Sibylline leaves are written suggests the woman writer's own anxieties about her equivocal position in a patriarchal literary culture, which often seems to her to enact strange rituals and speak in unknown tongues. The woman may be the cave, but, so Mary Shelley's hesitant response suggests, it is the man who knows the cave, who analyzes its meaning, who, like Plato, authors its primary parables, and who even interprets the language. But, Multiple pages later, the woman writer redeems herself by being able to interpret these writings, and they write that uh, the woman writer recovers herself as a woman of art. Thus, where the traditional male hero makes his night sea journey to the center of the earth, the bottom of the mirror, the belly of the whale— to slay or be slain by the dragons of darkness, the female artist makes her journey into what Adrian Rich has called the cratered night of female memory, to revitalize the darkness, to retrieve what has been lost, to regenerate, reconceive, and give birth. So one of the things that she gives birth to is the plague, uh, described uh, by one critic as a new inhuman protagonist. Uh, who is characterized as female, but who sees to it that disaster is no longer the property of the individual, but of the entire human race. And the writers kind of draw a contrast between the story of the last man, which they describe as a vision of last things, a vision of judgment, and of paradise nihilistically restored that balances out Frankenstein's story, which they describe as a vision of first things, with all of humanity wiped out by the plague, just as the entire Frankenstein family was destroyed by Victor's monster, the narrator goes to Rome, that cradle of patriarchal civilization, whose ruins had seemed so majestically emblematic to both Byron and Shelley. But where Mary's husband had written of the great city in a kind of ecstasy, his widow had her disinherited, quote, last man wander aimlessly around empty Rome until he finally resolves finding some writing materials uh, that he will also write a book. And uh, here also we have a little sense of the contrast between Mary's view 
of civilization in contrast to the romantic view, uh, where she thinks that this would be a kind of hell to end up as the last man on earth and a vote in favor of community, whereas the romantics would view the individual as supreme. So to read a bit from The Last Man, this book is also available for free, and I'll put the link into the show notes. Uh, So The Last Man uh, cries when he comes across these writing materials and some other manuscript items lying around. He says, I also will write a book, I cried, for whom to read, to whom dedicated, and then with silly flourish, what so capricious and childish as despair, I wrote, dedication to the illustrious dead. Shadows arise and read your fall. Behold the history of the last man. It takes him a year to write his story, and he goes on to describe the loneliness and solitude of that year and what it has been like to live with no other voice and watching the changing of the seasons. Uh, He has encountered a dog. It's interesting how dogs show up in these stories over and over again. Uh, So he's a sheepdog and was uh, some kind of companion to him. Uh, But he also says now that it's time for him to move on and leave Rome and that a solitary person is by instinct a wanderer. And so he decides to go in search of water because that's been a big part of his story. He talks of all the places that he wants to go and what he thinks they will mean to him when he gets there. And then we close the book with this. These are wild dreams, yet since now a week ago they came upon me, as I stood on the height of St. Peter's, they have ruled my imagination. I have chosen my boat and laid in my scant stores. I have selected a few books. The principal are Homer and Shakespeare. But the libraries of the world are thrown open to me, and in any port I can renew my stock. I form no expectation of alteration for the better, but the monotonous present is intolerable to me. Neither hope nor joy are my pilots." Restless despair and fierce desire of change lead me on. I long to grapple with danger, to be excited by fear, to have some task, however slight or voluntary, for each day's fulfillment. I shall witness all the variety of appearance that the elements can assume. I shall read fair augury in the rainbow, menace in the cloud, some lesson or record dear to my heart in everything. Thus around the shores of deserted earth, while the sun is high and the moon waxes or wanes, angels, the spirits of the dead, and the ever-open eye of the supreme will behold the tiny bark, freighted with Verney, the last man. And to come full circle here, there actually is a Sibyl's cave in New Jersey, and in 1841, the body of a woman, Mary Cecilia Rogers, described as the bloodied body, uh, drifted to shore near the mouth of that cave, and into legend it became the subject of a thriller by Edgar Allan Poe. The body belonged to a New York City cigar girl who was known for her beauty, uh, but the mystery of her murder was never solved. But it did come to the attention of Edgar Allan Poe, 
And so he was inspired to include it as a short story in his collection, The Murders in the Rue Morgue. And he called it The Murder of Marie Roger and set it in Paris. A couple more creepy details here to uh, polish off your literary Sunday. So it looks as though Mary's boss was a guy by the name of John Anderson, and he was known to be a very jealous character. In fact, his fiance died in a very similar spot to Mary, uh, clutching a bottle of poison after he became uh, very jealous about her. And while Poe wrote that the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world, uh, it came out after John Anderson's death that he had actually paid Poe $5,000 to write the story of Marie Roget, uh, perhaps in an attempt to draw people's attention away from John himself, who many believe to be her murderer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.